I cannot tell you how rich it has been for me in studying these Psalms of Ascent. I, I read them quite regularly, but to do an exposition, to do a study of them has been the joy of my heart. And I, do, I say that because one of the things I do in studying um, on Thursday mornings when I get in my study, uh, I am there for, for the rest of the day and sometimes into the next day sometimes. And I'm not telling you that for you to pat me in the back. I'm just saying there's just so much. And you would think that five verses are not that packed with truths that we have to um, take two Sundays on them. And, and that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to look at just verses 1 and 2 this morning. And, and you might think you're going to get out of here in 15 minutes. Well, you're mistaken. <laughs> no, I do, I do, I don't, I, not because Lois and I have to take off very quickly after the service that I just chose two verses because uh, they were chosen long before um, this morning or any time. But they're so, so rich. You remember Job? Job in verses, uh, chapter 23, verses 1 to 4, Job said, Even today my complaint is rebellion. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, speaking of God, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him, and fill my mouth with arguments. Have you ever felt that your faith is getting nowhere with God? That's how Job felt. He felt that there, there, somehow he was not registering uh, as, as the, the, the promises given before. In fact, he said, sometimes I feel that God is absent. This is what he said, even today my complaint is rebellion. How I wish I knew where he was. Sometimes what we believe contradicts our environment, where we are. And this is, this is what the psalmist was, was going through. James Dobson wrote a book some years ago, and it, he sold millions of the book. The title of the book is, When God Doesn't Make Sense. And, and that happens. I May mean, I suggest to you that if your, if your faith has never been questioned by you, when I, what I mean, not whether it is real, but, but if I am trusting God, why is this happening to me? If I really believe that God is, is, is in control, how come when I look, things seem to be out of control? The prophets went through this, Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1 says, Lord, I cry to you, and the more I cry to you about violence, the more violence seems to be increasing. Our psalm this morning is a psalm that will challenge us, but I, I hope will comfort us. It will allow us to see with, with the eye of faith what the natural eyes cannot see. Verse 1 
gives us what I call an exposure of false faith. An exposure of it. It is, it is implied because it says, they that trust in the Lord, by saying that there are those who trust in the Lord, he's implying that there are those who don't trust in the Lord. But, but those who don't trust in the Lord might be religious people. Those who don't trust in the Lord might be people who are upright. And yet the psalmist says that there's a difference between those who trust and those who don't trust. And what I want to do in the exposure of false faith, I could have been contemporary and say fake faith. Everything is fake these days. I want to name four things very quickly that are false faith. These four things are things that, that, that we experience in our own lives that if we're not careful, we make those things the things in which we trust. And by trusting those things, we are not able to deal with the storms which comes into our lives, which are inevitable. The first identity of false faith is found in Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. These two nouns, the chariots and the, and, and the horses, are, are, are military strength in our parlance for today. If we have the necessary military things, we can take care of matters. In fact, how appropriate is this this week? Have you not been listening to it? The conversation, the conflicts between North Korea and America, and some are blaming the president because his language was a bit too strident. I noticed as I listened to the news, nobody was blaming North, North Korea. They, they were, the, they were the, it, was the, it was that madman in North Korea who started the whole thing, not the president. But yet there are those who are blaming him. But how did he respond? We have the necessary weapon to respond to your weapon. And we're saying that if we have the right amount of missiles, the right amount of the, 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 perhaps, do we want to use computers that we can use to gauge and to see where the missiles are going and we can knock them out in, in midair? Do we trust in military strength to give the protection for the cities, for the country? That's false faith. That's false faith. Some trust in chariots. That's what they trusted in in that day. Some trust in horses. That's what they trusted in. And whoever had the most chariots and whoever had the most, most horses, they were the ones that were on top. Now, you know me well enough to know that I'm not saying we shouldn't have a strong military. Absolutely, I believe in that. You know me well enough to know that I am not a pacifist. I believe in what is known as a just war. But my friends, the difficulty is when what we have becomes our trust. When we put our confidence in the amount of, of build-up that we have. I always remember back in 
you know, when what was known as the Cold War, that was saying that America had missiles that were directed to Russia, and Russia had missiles that were directed to America. And if each would put those weapons off at the same time, <laughs> we'd both be at zero. <laughs> we would destroy them, and they would destroy us. Where is our trust? False faith, number one, trusting in military strength. False faith, number two, Psalm 49, verse 6. Some trust in their wealth and the abundance of their riches. This is the trust in materialism. If we have enough money, we can get what we really, really want. We can get the protection. We'll have enough to make sure that our old age is taken care of. Uh, you know, it's interesting with my wife retiring this year, we've had a financial guy come and talk to us about the millions and how we're going to deal with it. <laughs> and, and, and he's telling us about the things we need to do and what we need to make sure we have. And I am not against those things, friends. But a, a man in the days of Christ, we're told, had land and sheep and everything that one could want. And he says, I have enough to last me for my lifetime. And this is what I'm going to do. And what was he called? A fool. Because he trusted in his possession. His possession possessed him. And that is what happens when we trust in our wealth. My, my friends, nobody's saying that people should not work and make money. Abraham was a rich man. Job was a rich man. But Job had his eyes somewhere else so that when the storms came, Job was able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord because he was trusting, not in his possession. His possession did not possess him. False trust in materialism. Third, Isaiah 30, 1 and 2. I call this the trust in human intelligence or reason. Let me read it for you. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of, by my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go, who, who walk to, go down to Egypt, and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Egypt was the military power in that day. And when Israel got into trouble, they thought we could run to Egypt for help and try to reason with them. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you the words of Huxley. And in my research, I found the words of H.G. Wells. 
I didn't realize that they were writing during the 30s as, as I shared with you the books that uh, Brave New World. But listen to this. In 1920, H.G. Wells wrote a book, The Outline of History. And in The Outline of History, the belief was in the human progress. He said, once we overcome the superstition of religion and begin to apply science to everything, we will get rid of war, poverty, and racism. He wrote that in 1920. He, we will get rid of war. <laughs> we'll get rid of poverty. We'll get rid of racism. Just get rid of religion. Get rid of everything that's wrong with the world. 1933, his second book, The Shape of Things to Come. He was appalled by the selflessness, the selfness, selflessness of nations, by the program they wanted. And he said the only hope for, listen to this, the only hope for the world is for rational, reasonable people to get rid of the intellectuals and, and create a government and to run the, the, the education, educational program stressing justice, peace, and equity. Get rid of the intellectuals who are running the country and, and provide, get some people together who really know how to do it and have a compulsory educational system where people will, will learn how to love one another. <laughs> have we learned? 1945. His third book, A Mind at the End of Its Debtors. What did that mind said? He said, Homo sapiens, rational human beings. Homo sapiens is the last hope that we have. The end is inevitable. God says, if you trust in human reasoning, you are going to find yourself with a false faith. Because, see, human reasoning comes from human beings. And when we create a world and create the God we want from that world from human reason, we will be afraid of that world because we know who we are. We know that push to the limit, selfishness comes out. We know that push to the limit, we seek for self-defense more than for the country or the home, even in homes. People are losing it today because human reasoning is telling us that this is how we're going to save ourselves and the world. I don't want to stress too much on that because that's not the, the, the impact, the, the, the strength of the message. But number four, I want to spend a little bit of time on this one. Number four, false gods, false faith. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. When Paul 
was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked. He became so burdened and, and, and pressed by what he was seeing because he was beholding a city that was full of idols. Idols. And, and you might want to say to me this morning, come on, Winston. We live in the 21st century. We don't have idols. We don't. Oh, dear friends. And I, I, just, I just want us... Listen, I, I'm going to give you a definition of I, idols or idolatry and leave it there. An idol is defined as anything that you treasure more than God. Whatever takes the place of God in my life or your life is an idol. Whatever we can't do without is an idol. Whenever the good becomes the ultimate, that's an idol. Whenever we we see our lives revolving around what we need to have, anything that can make us excuse ourselves from God's presence is an idol because that thing takes more importance to us than God himself. And there's only one thing we are told to do in our lives. We shall love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our minds and with all our strength Only God should have that, nothing else. And sometimes we we are hoping in some of these idols that we are going to get the kind of life, get the kind of positions. My friends, my, my heart is aching not only for our church, for the state in which we live, but this country. We are evicting God and we are replacing him with idols we have made and we still expect the country to survive. It's impossible. The nation that forgets God will perish. That's not my words. That's the Bible. That's the scriptures. And whenever we have faked faith, the end result is inevitable. That's a short list. There could be more. Like I said, I just want you to understand. Check. Let us check our own hearts. Are there idols that we worship? You know, let let me give you one illustration. There's, There's nothing, there's nothing I want more than to see this place full with people. I would love to see that. But let me tell you, if that is all I'm here for, that's an idol. That's an idol. What I want is to say, whether two or three are gathered together, Christ has promised his presence, and his presence is more precious to me than 200 people in here on a Sunday morning. That's what God Wants to, when he becomes the center of my passion, not something else to which I may add God to. Well, that's, that is the identity of false faith. 
Let's look at the, what I call the solidity. I told Leifa this. I said, you sure that's a word? I said, yeah, check it out. The, the solidity is something that is sound. And listen to how the psalmist puts it. Those who trust in the Lord, and I was, I was moved by this. Because look at, the, look at the tense of the verb. Those who trust in the Lord not will be, or could be, but are. Those who trust in the Lord. This true faith, faith that is sung based upon the scriptures. The word trust means to rely in for security. In fact, there's a word that we use that you'd be surprised that it's a nuance of this word. It's to be carefree. And the word carefree doesn't mean careless. It means to be free from stress and anxiety. It means to be not caring for those things because something else is in place. So when we are free from stress, it is because we are trusting, trusting God. Those who trust in the Lord, who rely upon Him, who look to Him for security. You know, I always think, <laughs> we have a security system in our house. And, and, and I suppose you might say, wow, do you have that much possession that you need security system? Uh, no, not really. Unless they want to take my books, then I'll fight for that. You know. <laughs> but sometimes I'm going out to the store. I'm just going down to Roth. And I say, um, set, this, set the system, Winston. And then I'll say, you're just going down the street. And then I talk to myself, yeah, but you remember what happened to John MacArthur's wife when she was just going out for a minute? And, and so I, be, I begin to, to see myself insecure. You know, my house has to be protected, so I better set that alarm before I leave. Now, I paid for it, so I set it. <laughs> but let me tell you something. I set it as a sense of responsibility, not reliance. I don't say, okay, nothing can happen to this house. Nobody will break in because the system is on. <laughs> no, they can't. Those who trust in the Lord, says the text, are like Mount Zion. That mountain has been there for centuries and centuries and centuries, and it has remained intact. Listen, let me tell you what trust in God will do. Trust in God makes us like Mount Zion so that we are able to respond to unjust criticism. Unjust criticism. You'll find that in 2 Samuel 16, 5 to 10. David is marching down looking for a place to rest, and Shemei is on a hill 
and he begins to curse David and swear at David and call David all kinds of names. And one of David's servants said, do you want me to go and cut off that dead dog's head? Listen to David. David said, what have I to do with you with that kind of an attitude? Listen, listen. What if God has sent him to do it? Wow. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. And God is saying, I can trust David with unjust criticism because he has character of faith. His faith is so rooted, so solid, that even if he is unjustly criticized, he will be like the one that will follow him, who when he was reviled, did not revile again. Who when he was sworn upon, did not swore back. Oh, friends, I tell you, only if you have strong faith in God can you deal with that. Only if I have strong faith in God can I be like Mount Zion. And, and I tell you, sometimes, sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens. I had to talk to myself this past week on Highway 22. Now, Winston, you're supposed to have grace. That guy did not have it. Or oh, if he had it, he wasn't using it. <laughs> Unjust criticism. My friends, I don't know that if anything is as difficult for a human being to deal with than unjust criticism. And you know, may I just take off for a moment and say, if you want to pray for your president, pray that he will be given the ability to deal with unjust criticism. Because he needs it. He needs it. And unless he has a faith that is like Mount Zion, he will be moved. You will be moved. I will be moved. I will go and cut off that dead dog's head. <laughs> Secondly, those who trust in the Lord are like the immovable Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. They are assured in the face of present danger. They are assured in the face of present danger, the presence of God. Daniel chapter 6, verse 18. Daniel was put into the, into the den of lions. And he was put there because of his faithfulness to God. The king was disturbed that he was seduced into saying, giving the law that led Daniel there. And the next morning, he went... He went <laughs> He went to the den of lions, where the lions were. And what did he say? Oh, Daniel, is your God in whom you trusted, whom you served? The word is worship. Is your God in whom you trusted able to deliver you? And what did Daniel say? Yes. My God in whom I trust sent his angel. And some believe that that word speaks of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Just like Joshua chapter 5 speak of the, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Daniel said he sent his angels 
And he said to the lions exactly what Jesus was going to say to the storm later on in life. Be still. And the lions went to sleep. Daniel slept in the den of lions because he was assured even though he was in there in an unjust way, the presence of God was with him and made him like Mount Zion. Thirdly, in the face of circumstances, in the face of circumstances, we are like Mount Zion. What, what do I mean by that? I mean, my friends, the scripture says, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulations. The word tribulation comes from a Greek word which means pressure, problems, circumstances. You will face all those things, but Jesus said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. See, faith that is solid and sound, based not upon emotions, but upon truth, is able to endure like Mount Zion. They are unmovable. They stay. Nothing, the winds may come and blow, but that house stands, says the Lord Jesus. In Psalm 45, verse five, 46, verse 5, God says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. <laughs> Have you ever read the first part of Psalm 46? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, and we love that. But the next verse says, Though the mountains be moved and carried into the midst of the sea, therefore we will not fear. Let me tell you. <laughs> what would you do if sometime you're, you're driving on I-5 and Mount Hood is no longer there? It's in the Pacific Ocean somewhere. That's what the psalmist says. If the mountains be removed and carried into the sea, my the, the one who is my refuge and strength will continue to be my refuge and strength because my faith is in him. In him. Psalm 61 verse 7, he will abide before God forever. For God is the one whose loving kindness is keeping him. True faith is not trust which is so fickle that when circumstances blow against it, it changes. There are people, my friends, who have been to Wheaton College, who have been to Prairie Bible Institute, who have been to Moody Bible Institute, who have been to Biola Bible Institute, who have been to Fuller Theological Seminary. They went there with supposedly a faith, and for some reason, something happens that they have now turned against God and even write books calling themselves atheists. That's fickle faith. Faith was not present in the first place. Because true faith is like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. I don't change with the circumstances. So, let's look quickly at the encouragement. The encouragement for bona fide faith. Bona fide faith. The word bona fide comes from the Latin, which means that which is authentic. That which is solid. The encouragement. Listen to what the verse 2 says. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Now here's where the difficulties comes in sometimes. 
as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Oh. The mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. John the Baptist introduced the world to Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then Herod began to blow his evil storm against John the Baptist when John the Baptist says to Herod, it is not right for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod put him in prison. And from the prison bars, John the Baptist called his disciples and said, go to Jesus and ask him if he's the one I'm looking for or someone else. In other words, if he's the one that I'm looking for, what am I doing here? Why am I in prison? If, 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 if the mountains which surrounds Jerusalem is a picture of God surrounding his people, then if God is surrounding me, then nothing should ever go wrong in my life. At least that's what we think. I call this, first of all, a sentry. God becomes a sentry, S-E-N-T-R-Y. You know what a sentry is? Someone who is there to, to look out for enemies to come. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord surrounds his people. Jeremiah chapter 12. Righteous are you, O Lord. When I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why do the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? I'm looking at the word why. You would think that if you belong to God, you'd never have to ask why. Jeremiah did. Moses did. John the Baptist did. Why? And it's not wrong for a believer to ask why. But it's how. You remember, you remember the two sisters when Lazarus was dead? And it was told that Jesus was coming to Bethany? <laughs> Martha went out and said to the Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then, then came Mary. And I, I, I am assuming that Mary said it this way. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, you know. See, Martha was assertive. Martha spoke with a sense of urgency. Her sister said the same thing. But my friends, an utterance of trust is different than an utterance of assertion. The way in which we say it. When we ask why, we are not saying that somehow God has made a mistake. People have written books and why we cannot trust God fully because things will go wrong. Books like, why do bad things happen to good people? And there's a, the, one writer, one Jewish writer said that the reason that happened is because God is only good up to certain points. His power is only good to certain points. 
if God is surrounding me, as the mountains surround, surround Jerusalem, why? Why is it sometimes someone wrote to Rabbi Zacharias and asked the question, why does God make it so hard for us to find him? If, if you want me to answer that question, I will answer it for you. Ecclesiastes 4 says, God has put eternity in our hearts. No man finds it hard to God if he is truly seeking God. No man. Eternity is in our hearts. And, and, and somehow when we see life crumbling, we say, I wonder, I wonder what God is doing. I wonder why God is allowing this. Listen, there's a beautiful story in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 6 to 17. It is a story of the Assyrians coming to attack the army of Israel. It's a beautiful story. And Elisha had a servant who got up early one morning. And when he went out and he looked on the horizon, you know what he saw? He saw the armies of the Assyrians. He panicked. There was only him and Elijah at that point. And he ran back inside the tent and he said, Oh, my master, what are we going to do? The Assyrian army is all over the place. I love this man who was trusting in God. Listen, listen to how he dealt with the surrounding enemies. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. He's, he's looking this way. And he sees the Assyrian army. I'm looking this way. And I don't know how God is going to reveal his host but open his eyes that he might see it. And God opened his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, what did he see? He was surrounded. Here's what I got from that. When we are in the same arena, surrounded by the Assyrian enemy, whatever we want to apply that to, storms of life, disappointments in life, defeats in life, when we're in that situation, listen, God is surrounding both. See, God is not outside of what's happening to us. Even, even, even when there are situations like Job, when Satan tried to attack Job, God was surrounding both Job and Satan. See, nothing is out of the vision, the sight of God. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good and the evil. You know what he's saying? That God is so absolutely sovereign. That when the circumstances, when the storms come in the circle where he is keeping us, he is beyond the circle still keeping us. My friends, I sat at my desk and I 
I, I, I thought of that. I thought of some of the experiences of some of our people this past week, the past month, the past year. I thought of people with cancer. I thought of people with surgery and people who continue to get treatment even this very moment. Please do not believe that you are outside of the circle for if you are trusting in God, you are surrounded this morning. And both the evil and the good are controlled by God's sovereignty. My friends, I can't explain that all. You know, Proverbs 16 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I can't explain it, but I'm going to tell you, I will trust the Lord that no matter what comes to me, I want to make sure that I am within the circle of his surrounding. That's what the text says. Those that trust in the Lord shall be like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. Zechariah 2.5 says, For I declare, says the Lord, I will be a wall of fire around her, around him. I will be the glory in her. So that those who are surrounded by the Lord are given a glory that belongs to those who trust in the Lord. His glory shines in them and through them. I wish I had time. I'll just give you the story in Acts chapter 27. Paul is supposed to go to Rome to stand trial. And on the way there, the storm came. And the storm was so vicious that the captain thought, we're all going to die. And Paul said to the captain, don't do yourself any harm. For there stood by me this night the angel of the Lord and assured me that we are going to get home safely to Rome. So be of good cheer. <laughs> what is Paul doing right in the middle of the storm? He knew the reality of the storm. He saw the winds blowing. He saw the ship almost crushing, uh, crash, crashing. He was aware of the dangers that he faced, but he said, I believe God he gave me his promise. And please listen, in the midst of the storms of our lives, there are two things you need to maintain, my friends. Two things. In the midst of the storm of life, you need to rely upon the, the, the promises of God. You need to rely upon that. When you cannot explain what's happening, you rely upon his promise because God cannot lie. God cannot lie. The second thing you want to rely upon is upon the power of God. The power of God. For he is able to make all things work together for the good of those who love him. We might not be able to explain everything, but neither will we be able to explain the peace which he gives when we trust him. Lastly, the surety of God's people, the people, God's people of faith or trust. They're surety. The word again, surety just means that which is sound. 
all through, this is what the, this is the whole idea of the mountain which cannot be moved, is that you have a faith like a mountain that is unshakable. And it says this, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. We do not stop halfway on our journey to forever. The issues and circumstances of life do not let us leave God behind. We are conscious of the fact in Psalm in Acts 27, 41 to 44, it says, and they made it safely to shore. They made it safely to shore from this time forth and forever. But my friends, our journey, our journey is not a journey that is from, from here to there. Our journey is from here to there. And the devil and circumstances of life and the policies of the world in which we live will affect our journey. But listen, God has designed for you and for me to make it home. For he who began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ. He's not going to leave us halfway. We don't need to leave him halfway. He began it, and he will complete it. But he will complete it this way, as you trust him, as you trust him, as you trust him. What it means to trust God, my friends, is that we don't have a faked faith. We do not trust in men, although we serve men. We do not trust in weapons, although we need them. We do not trust in riches, although we need it. We do not trust in idols. We don't need them. But we trust in the Lord. And our trust makes us as unmovable. As Paul said after the resurrection, abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that his work and his word, not in vain. We can trust him. Because by trusting him, we are surrounded by him. Let's pray. Take a moment, uh, friends. Just a moment. How did you come into this place this morning? Hurting? Discouraged? Was the week a week of victory or defeat? Please remember that if you are trusting God, you are surrounded. And he beholds everything that is happening to you, whether good or bad. And when we think that he doesn't know, he is the sentry for our souls. We will get to this later on. And perhaps you need to re renew your trust in God this morning. Renew your trust in the Lord. Ask him for grace to keep on trusting in spite of whatever.
Father, hear the sighs of your people, the groans of your people, and give assurance this morning that your people of faith are a people surrounded. And the one who surrounds us inhabits both the good and the evil, and he's able to control both. This is the confidence we have in you, that you are a sovereign God. And when we trust you, you share with us your love, your grace, your mercy, so that we become like an unmovable mountain in our faith to the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen.